You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Man, it's good to see you. It really is. It's good to see familiar faces. We've been gone for a couple weeks, and it's always good to, to go, enjoy your time away, but then to come back and be at home with you is a huge blessing. We spent time down in Southern California. We took our grandkids, our three older grandkids, and we took their mom and dad as well. And uh, we went to Disneyland, and so we spent time at Disneyland. We had that, you know, that uh, marathon pass. It's like a five-day pass. So after you've been there five days, it's no longer Disneyland. It's Dizzyland. I mean, everything, you're just dizzy. And you're just running through there 100 miles an hour. Annette, during that period of time, walked 45 miles. That's a lot of work. She said, you know, Ron, I think if I can do this, I can do anything. I said, I think you can too. Uh, she did that while I sat on benches and ate caramel corn. How about that? You know, that was, that was my fun. But we had such a great time. Uh, all the kids, getting to know the kids even more. Uh, we went on about every ride you can go on because they're old enough now. They passed that magic mark of, I think 48 inches is the magic mark there. But they're, they're all right there, and so we went on all the rides, all the fun. And uh, my granddaughter is a thrill seeker. She wanted to go with me on the California Screaming. Uh, if you've ever been on that, yeah, yeah. You go upside down a few times, I think. I don't know. I have my eyes closed. I can't remember. But uh, she was just having a blast. We had a great time and loved it. And so uh, that was my grandson's first driving lesson at uh, Autotopia. Is that what that is? And so he and I went together, hung out. Uh, you know, they make you think you're actually driving that thing, don't they? It's kind of a cruel trick. But, uh, but he had a blast. We really had a, a good time. I needed to come in a little early. Uh, I, I left the family there in uh, Southern California to come home for a wedding uh, the next day. Like I came in on a Friday and had a wedding on a Saturday. And uh, when I walked in the door, it was late. It's probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And uh, look who was greeted me. Who, this, this kid, was he, was he was up. So you want to talk about being good, it being good to be home. You know, when you walk in the door and he's there and he runs and hangs, wants to hang out with you, uh, that was just a blast. And so it's good to be back. In fact, we were just gone one weekend. I took the liberty, if it was okay with you, because it was okay with God, so I did it. Uh, I wasn't here last Sunday. I was in town, but I didn't come to church, all right? Yeah, I know. Some of you, though, caught me at Biscuits. That's where you caught me. So I saw you driving by looking at me. I actually tried to get it to go so I wouldn't be in there that long. But, man, I, I had the worst timing. I pulled through this intersection, and you're all leaving, you know? Hey, hey. I thought, oh, man. Um, but God told me I could do that, so I did it. I think you're all right with it. Thank you for uh, being a place we can pull that off every now and again. So it was fun. We really had a good time. And uh, this is what we want to do today, however. What we want to do is pull out two things. I want you to pull out your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue Bibles around the building that you can pull one of those out. If you don't have a Bible, take that blue Bible. It's yours. Uh, we want you to have God's Word. The other thing you can pull out is the uh, bulletin or the flyer we're calling it now, I guess. And this is a study in the book of Philippians. You're going to see there are a lot of blanks here. Now, when I looked at it, I thought, who in the world is teaching? Because that's a lot of blanks to fill in. It is me. 
So we are going to be filling in a lot, of, a lot of blanks, but it is in one of the best chapters, I think, in all the Bible. This is an amazing chapter that Paul is writing to us about on unity, about joy, about resolving conflict, about how we need to live our lives in our head. You know, what should we be thinking about? Paul does a great job, a masterful job under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit to to get us where we need to be. So again, it's good to see you here today. If you're visiting, you are so welcomed here. I hope you feel welcomed. We're in a series called Impact, and it is a study in the book of Philippians. And, And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some of his dear friends in a place called Philippi. It was the first church plant on European soil. And at that time, it was old Macedonia is kind of the area it was in. And what makes this letter remarkable to me is this reoccurring theme of joy. Uh, I mean, in in, in the New Testament, joy is mentioned one-third of the time in the book of Philippians. So the point is, and Paul's wanting us to understand, true, authentic, real joy only comes from Jesus Christ. And so he repeats this, this theme over and over again. I think what makes it remarkable to me is the human element of all of this. Because you have to consider where he had written this letter from. He had written this letter from a prison. So he is chained to a prison guard uh, in Rome. And he writes this letter back to Philippi. And uh, this was like 10 years, 15 years after he had planted this church. He writes this letter from a prison to a place that he spent time in prison, in Philippi. Now, if you want to think you've got bad memory uh, of a place, that, that, would it, that would be it. You know, most of us go, man, I didn't get a, treated right at that hotel. I'm never going back there again. Well, when you're talking about spending time in prison, you know, I'm not sure I'd be talking about joy a whole lot. But the Apostle Paul talks about joy here. And so we look at Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to pay a special attention to verses 1 through 9. That's Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Because it's here the Apostle Paul shows us why it's so important to have true, authentic joy found in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul shows us two very important things in Philippians chapter 4. There there are two really uh, overarching lessons that we can learn as believers in Jesus. And I think you're going to find these lessons to be pretty important. Number one is this. How to respond to bad news in great ways. That's a a continual struggle for me. Because I know where I want to go when I receive bad news. And I know how I want to respond when I receive bad news. And it isn't always godly. And the Apostle Paul shows us here, here's how you can respond to bad news in great ways. And it's not in uh, the framework of denial. It's not in this uh, idea that you're just burying your head in the sand. It's not with the idea that, oh, we'll never experience any heartache or, or death or grieving. No, he says we deal with all of this in life. This is what we deal with in life, but there is a good way that we can respond to even the bad news that we receive. That's a challenge that all of us face. Number two is this, how to move from mood swings to mindsets. <laughs> The greatest challenge of your life is how do I not live in the flesh? How do I not live in these these moody places that I find myself in where my emotions dictate everything in my life? And not not only do my emotions dictate the way I feel, but the people I'm connected to, I let their emotions dictate the way I feel. Now that is a swing. I mean, that's a dizzy, dizzy swing to live in. 
And it's an unhealthy place to be. But the Apostle Paul says, I want you to move from mood swings to having a mindset in Christ Jesus that will help you maneuver through life in a healthy way. Are you all in for that? I mean, I, I need to know about this kind of stuff. So you all know how unhealthy that is to live in that kind of environment when you let your mood dictate your emotions. Now, here's the first lesson that Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 4. The first thing is this, is rejoice through conflict. The Apostle Paul is a master at teaching us about how to go through conflict. One of the things he talks to us about in this chapter is you, you not only need to go through conflict, you'll not only go through conflict, but you can rejoice through conflict conflict. And this is what he says in verses 1 through 5. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sentiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all that the Lord is near. Now, what's happening here? One of the themes that Paul deals with here predominantly, and the reason he's writing the letter, is he's dealing with unity in the body of Christ, especially in the church of Philippi. There's been some discourse that has been taking place. Until this passage, we really aren't privy to what's going on. This gives us a glimpse at what he's addressing, what he's dealing with here. Paul seems to be addressing a conflict between two people, probably leaders in the church of Philippi. And the way Paul addresses these women with honor, uh, with gentleness, indicates something to us. And we need to pay attention to this. It indicates that he has every reason to believe that they will resolve their conflict. Just by the tone of of the letter, by the way that he constructs his, his, his language... He's saying it in a gentle way. He's not harsh here. He's not, he's not just pulling out the bat and whacking somebody. He does in other places, by the way. He deals with them and some of the heretics. He deals with them in very harsh ways sometimes, but he needed to. Here, he's not doing that. He's writing this in a very gentle tone. And the reason he's doing that is he's saying to them, he's saying to them, I have confidence in both of you that Jesus is going to help you resolve this and you're going to keep Jesus at the center. Even though you've had some conflict, I know that you're going to really work at keeping Jesus at the center. Aren't you all encouraged that when you have leaders like that in your life? I mean, I have been. I've been, I've been very encouraged with leaders who come in and appropriately speak and measure their words well to correct me, to bring correction to my life. And this is what Paul's doing. It is, a, it is an artful lesson on how to deal with conflict. So here's what we know about this conflict. And a lot of it has to do with what's not there. How many know it's important of what's not there? You ever thought about that? I mean, you certainly see what is there. What isn't there? Well, when I look at this passage of Scripture, I'm thinking, okay, what's not here? Well, what's not here is a theological problem. That's not what he's dealing with here because he uses different language to address theological issues. What is not here is an ethical problem because he uses different language to address ethical issues. What's not here is a moral problem because he uses different language to address a moral problem. This is most likely a social disagreement. 
So there's something going on of which we don't know of some sort of disagreement. But he says this, and notice one of the phrases he uses, to agree with each other in the Lord. See what he says there? He's instructing them. He says to agree with each other in the Lord. Now look at that word agree. I think that's, that's probably the same in your translation as it is in mine. That word agree in the Greek is synergos. Where do you think that comes from? What, what word do we get in the English? Synergy. Synergy. Wow, what an appropriate word to use here. Paul's not saying, hey, get along in all the things that you do and be happy and love each other and smile and then talk about each other behind their backs when you leave. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something very important here, which all of us can take note from. What he's saying here, and using the word synergy, find what you both have in common. What is that? Jesus Christ and the gospel and work together for the greater good. That's what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, you might have some of these disagreements, but hey, raise your head above the clouds. Look up. Have a better perspective. You did before because you work with me side by side contending for the gospel. Something has happened here. You've had a mission drift. Something's gone on. So pay attention. So Paul reminds them that they're working for the greater good here. I need to be reminded of that every now and again, especially when we get caught in dispute especially when they're believers and we're in it together. What is the greater good? It's the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. And Paul uses a few other phrases here, one that I I really think is particularly interesting. He uses this phrase, and he reminds them. I think he does it in a subtle way. He says to them, hey, now this is paraphrase, you guys are on the same team. Why are you all messing with each other? Why are you disputing with each other? How do I know He wants them to know that they're on the same team. There's that phrase, did you see it? Whose names are in the book of life. He's saying, you know, this dispute, uh, Iodia and Sintiki, you guys, your names are in the book of life. I mean, when you get to heaven, this is an eternal perspective. This isn't just about now and appeasing your ego now. This is about something that goes into eternity with you. You are in the book of life. <laughs> so doggone it, get along. I mean, this is bigger than you. And that's what he says here. He reminds them that they are citizens of heaven. Now, here are some important lessons. I think it's, Im- it's important for us to have important lessons when we talk about conflict. And there are a couple here, three, I think, that I come up with that I think you can apply to any kind of uh, relationship you might be in, whether it's marriage or friendship, whatever it looks like. How, how do I do this? How do I go through conflict as the Apostle Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 4? Well, first of all, I think Paul's saying this. Paul says, hold different opinions, but share the same mind. In verse 2, be of the same mind in the Lord. You know, I recognize something. The more I, I, I lean into Jesus, the more I have the mind of Christ and that I'm united with him, it's amazing, because the more I do that, the more I'm united with you and others in the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? How your relationship with Jesus Christ parallels your relationship with those around you. And don't ever think that they're compartmentalized or they're separate. Don't do that, because we compartmentalize. We're used to, we kind of do that, to kind of justify our own crap, you know, excuse me, but that's what we do. But here he's saying, don't do that. He's saying, what you got to do, what you got to understand is your relationship with Jesus Christ directly is reflected in your relationship with others. So he's saying here, what he's, what he's wanting us to know is so important. 
He's saying you got to get along. you got to be united because it reflects everything else. Augustine, I love, how many are students of uh, Augustine, St. Augustine? I mean, the 400s, a great, uh, one of the, well, other than the Apostle Paul, considered one of the great apologists of the church. He writes this in very simple terms. He says, in essentials, let there be unity. In non-essentials, let there be liberty. And in everything we do, everything we do, let there be love. Let there be charity. Boy, if we could just follow those, those, those three um, uh, benchmarks for what it is to live together, what, what it means. And so what are the essentials? I, I, think, I, I think that's important for us to ask. Sometimes we think the essentials are the essentials when they're not really the essentials. How many know that? I mean, some of you have a definition of what you think are essentials. And can I tell you this? According to Scripture, it might not be. And it takes, a, it takes a strong man, a strong woman, a courageous person to look at that and take inventory of their own heart and say, wow, I always thought that was an essential, but it's really not an essential. So I love what John Wesley does. He frames it really well. I love these fathers and mothers of our faith. John Wesley says this, and he gives us the essentials. He says, I want the whole Christ for my Savior, the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. That's good. Those are essentials that we can live by. If you can take that home with you, then you're going to be a happy person. I mean, you're going to be a good, effective person. So here's something else. Something else about conflict. Being together is more important than being right. Whoa, wait a minute. I always want to be right. (laughs) But what Paul is saying here is he's saying koinonia. The fellowship that we have with each other, if we can learn just to be together, then other things will work themselves out. But if you're basing it on right and wrong every time you get together, you know how long that meeting lasts? Probably seven and a half minutes and one of you are out the door. Can, I, can you say amen to, that? amen to that? I mean, really. I mean, talk about, I mean, if this is your approach in marriage, and all the guys said, hey, amen, I could never do that. I mean, it's true. What Paul's saying is, listen, the koinonia of you getting together, he says in verse 3, these women, what they did is they contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. That these women used to help Paul preach the gospel, and now they're in conflict. So unity is so important, not uniformity. How many understand that? When, I, when we say unity, it's not uniformity. It's unity in Jesus. And the only thing that brings unity is being in Jesus Christ. That's the only hope we have of being unified. Nothing else will unify us like Jesus Christ. And again, what Paul is saying here is, ladies, you're on a kind of a mission drift. You've forgotten. You've gotten bogged down with some other things, and we all do this. I wouldn't be harsh uh, judgers. I wouldn't bring a harsh judgment to Eodia and Syntyche. The reason I wouldn't do that is because you've done the same thing. I've done the same thing. Where other things have become our obsession. Where other things have become the thing that weighs us down, that makes us think about other things, other than the purpose and mission of why you're here on this planet. Number one is you're created by God to live out His purpose on this planet and be a light for Jesus Christ. There it is. And Paul's saying to these ladies, hey, you guys are getting bogged down in this. You're forgetting your purpose. You're having and experiencing a mission drift. And so here's the third lesson during conflict, and that's this. I love this one. And I, I really hear this, if, if you would. Don't let an argument be your legacy. Here's what I'm concerned with. I'm concerned 
with how the body of Christ is understood in a lot of places. And I understand there's a lot of ways to interpret and misinterpret. But I think a lot of people understand the church or the body of Christ, their legacy is an argument. The legacy is conflict. Now, I'm not talking about just rolling over on the truth. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any of that. What I'm talking about is, yes, we stand up. We're apologists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when necessary, we can use some words. But use your life before you use anything else. And what he says here, what Paul, I think, is saying here, is don't be defined by conflict. Don't be defined by an argument. You know, I've known some pretty ornery people in my life. And when they've gone to the grave, that's what they've been defined by. I don't want to be defined that way. Now, I might have had conflict in my life. And I might have had a few arguments in my life. But I don't want that to define my legacy. I don't want that to be the the defining legacy of the church as well. And so Paul says this, and he says it clearly in verses 4 and 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. So what's that? That's the opposite of honoriness, isn't it? Don't you think? Rejoicing? The opposite of wanting to hold on to something and letting an argument be your legacy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all that the Lord is near. Now, how many of you have different interpretations? And I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> that word gentleness in the Greek language, interpreted into English, is one of the most difficult words to interpret. It is. Some of you have, I think, uh, forbearance. Some of you might be patience. Uh, Long-suffering is another word you can put in. The NIV chooses to use the word gentleness here, for the Lord is near. So if you want to be remembered for something, don't let it be conflict with others, but rather for your joy in all things and your gentleness. Now, when I say gentleness, immediately some people think, that's kind of a passive word. Not in the Greek. It's a very powerful word. You know what it means? It means this. (laughs) Even when you are right and someone is clearly wrong, double up on the grace. Be magnanimous in how you treat other people in generous ways. Do not judge. Double up on grace grace. So if you want to combat that argumentative spirit in your own life, what he's saying here is operate in gentleness. What does that mean? Selfless care for others. It is called, in my in another way I could put it, it is godly restraint. You are not obligated under the lordship of Jesus Christ to say every darn thing that comes to your mouth or your head. Can you get it? Do you get it? You don't have to put it on Facebook. You don't have to. You don't. We'll tell our president that too, okay? You don't have to do that. Under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit, we can operate in restraint, a godly restraint. Remember when my uh, daughter was about three years old, we just got done (laughs) painting the hallway. Pulled all my kids aside and said, okay, for the next day, do not Put your fingers on the walls in the hallway. Don't put those little fingers on the walls. They all listened to me and they went away. About an hour later, I was following my little girl down, down the hallway. And you know what she was doing? She was walking down the hallway and she was going, don't touch the walls, don't touch the walls, don't touch the walls, don't touch the walls. She was talking to her hands like her head and her hand were not even together. These hands may just pop out. You know, they got a mind of their own. 
They'll do something bad. Don't touch the walls. Don't touch the walls. Don't touch the walls. Some of us need to touch and talk to our fingers. Don't touch the keypad right now. Don't touch the keypad right now. Don't get on the phone right now. No, don't Twitter. No, no, no. Don't do that now. Don't oh, go on Facebook right now. Can you do that? Some of you just need to talk to your hands. That's godly restraint. What Paul is saying here is the thing that's going to shine through when everything's done is no one is really going to remember your social conflict, but they will remember how you responded in gentleness. I love this. It says, and you got a witness too. The Lord is near. <laughs> so if you're thinking about acting up, <clears throat> remember the Lord is near. And I think he does it. He has a couple meanings there. One is he wants to remind us that the Lord is near. You know, he is here. You know, when you get into conflict, sometimes you think he's not even listening. You know, it's like, <laughs> have you done that? You've said things, and it was really nasty. Oh, I'd never say that in front of Jesus. Well, you just did. You said it right in front of Jesus. Remember he's in the room. Remember he's in your heart. Remember it's his presence that goes with you. Remember that he will never leave you or forsake you. Remember that he is there, that he is near in conflict especially. You know Matthew where it says, and where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. How many have understood that to be in the context of prayer? It works. I mean, do you understand? Most people, yeah, that's prayer. That's not, it's great. It works for prayer. You know what it is in the context of? Solving problems. It's in the context of conflict. So he's saying, I want you to remember, where two or three of you are getting together and one of you wants to cuss, remember Jesus is there. Two or three of you get together and one of you wants to lose your temper, walk out the door and say some things that you'll never get back. Remember, Jesus is there. Remember, Jesus is there. Remember that he's near, that he's with us. So what is Paul doing? Paul's telling us that Jesus is near. So here it is, and this is the the second point here. Not only do we rejoice through conflict, um, but we rejoice through circumstances. We rejoice through circumstances. I love that. Listen to what, um, what he says. I think beginning at verse 6 is a good place to start. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I love this. This is a crescendo. Uh, this is probably one of the most complex two verses that probably has been written uh, in the New Testament because of what he does here is pretty amazing. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, then think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I love this. Paul is, can I say this? We don't get the the full meaning and the depth of it in English, but this is one of the best rhetorical passages of Scripture in the Bible, of what Paul is doing, and he's putting these complex thoughts together and makes them easy for us to understand. That's what Paul is doing here. So the question that I ask when I read this is, how do I rejoice through circumstances? Well, I need to, first of all, remember this. I need to remember that it's not, about my mood swings. It's about a mindset in Jesus Christ. It's about mindsets in Jesus, not mood swings in the flesh. So number one is this, and we're going to see the progression here. Notice the progression that Paul walks us through here. The first thing that he says is this. 
worry about nothing. Now, I want you to say that with me. Worry about nothing. You don't believe it. I'm going to say it again. Worry about nothing. I know what's popping into some of your heads. Phew, Paul's really out of touch. (laughs) I mean, Paul doesn't know anything that I got. Paul doesn't know the complexity of my life, the culture I live in, the people I work with. Certainly he doesn't know my family well because they give me heartache. He doesn't know this about, he doesn't know that I'm worried about provision. He doesn't know that I'm worried about a mutual fund. He doesn't know that I'm worried. Paul, Paul is living in denial. I mean, okay, really? Worry about nothing? That's so absolute. That's so all in, in that sense. Worry about nothing? Really, Paul? Does Paul really understand the world that I live in today? Does he? Well, let me read you something that he wrote to the church of Corinth. By the way, when he went into that church, he said, I determined not to know anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified because all you are kind of screwy people. And he says, I only want to know Jesus. So this is what he writes. Let's see if he has a handle on this. This is uh, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. He says, I've, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stone. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open ocean. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored, I've toiled, I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold, I've been naked. And besides all of this... I face daily pressures because I'm worried about you or I'm concerned about you. Yeah, you don't get it. If anyone gets it, it's this man. So if someone's going to tell me that, I I would like them to be an authority on that subject. This guy's resume, you just read it. When he says, worry about nothing, he lived it, he practiced it, he knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was saying here. When Paul said worry about nothing, he wasn't being heartless. He wasn't considering your feelings and what you may or may not be going through. Listen, he was just fearless. He was fearless. He had the courage of the Lord operating in his life. How did he do that? Well, it comes by that simple instruction. What's the word he repeats over and over here? Joy. So he says, the reason I can operate in a fearless manner is because I have the joy of the Lord in my life and the world can't mess with it, take it away, rob me of it. It is my strength. It is the joy of the Lord. So I can be anxious about nothing. Now, long before doctors came along to talk to us about worry and the effect it has on our body, soul, and spirit, Paul understood. He's saying worry about nothing. Why? Because when you worry... How does it affect your body? Man, you get high blood pressure. I mean, it it can eat away your your, your vital organs. I mean, it it causes stress. There's heart disease. All kinds of things come from worry, and it's not good. Not to speak or mention the emotional and spiritual strains that worry places in your life. So what does he say? Don't worry about anything. Remember, joy brings life. 
Joy in Jesus will bring you life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't hear it the first time, I'm saying it again. Rejoice because you guys worry all the time. That's what he's telling me. I don't know what he's telling you. That's what he's telling me. Number two, and see the progression. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. He says, he says this, but in every situation, prayer and petition. What, so what is this to me? I want you to do I don't know how you define prayer. You might, I don't even, you might think, well, that's so boring. I don't know about prayer. I don't even know what prayer is all about. Let me tell you, simply put, this. Prayer is the language of relationship with our Heavenly Father. Simply put, prayer is the love language of our Heavenly Father with you and me. That's what prayer is. And for those that know a little bit in marriage about love languages, you know what that means. He's saying, here, this, you want to you be connected? Then, then you pray. So this is a choice. It's a choice to move from worry to prayer. Can I say this? Prayer isn't the last resort. Prayer should be our first choice. Should be the first way we respond. And I, I'm going to tell you why I think it's really at the heart of this. And, and it's so personal to you. It really is. It's personal to me. It takes aim at my heart. The reason why this is so important is God wants time with you. Your heavenly father wants time with you. He wants you to talk with him. He wants you to share your heart with him. I mean, he wants you to spend time with him. And it's okay, by the way. You, you can be angry with God sometimes. You know that God's, Did you know God's big enough to do that and handle that? There are times we just walk through and we just have to say, God, here it is. Read the Psalms. David did it all the time. But what he wants is a dialogue. What he wants is a conversation with you. That's what he wants. Number three, progressing along here, thank God in all things. Really? In all things? So Paul is talking about a lifestyle of full surrender, a lifestyle of sincere and devout gratitude for Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Can I tell you something? Here, let me give you something you can check your life with, check your heart with. This, this is good, because I, I have to make things simple. But here it is. Here's the, here's the test. Gratitude is the best evidence of a soul free from anxiety. Absolutely. Gratitude is the best, is the best evidence of a soul free from anxiety. Think about that for a minute. I think they work juxtaposed to one another. That when you are not thankful, you're full of anxiety. When you're full of thanksgiving, you have low levels of anxiety. How about that? Measure that one. That, that'll, that's a good one you can just walk through the day with. You can say, man, why am I so anxious? Well, whoa, man, I have, I have not been grateful. I am not, I'm not operating out of thanksgiving here. And I'll tell you what, I, I have to deal with this all in my life. I have to deal with this. This is a battle. Because sometimes that anxiety will creep in and I'll go, oh man. And I did this. I was studying last week and I thought, man, I'm just not being grateful. I, I got to pull out my list, my gratitude list. I got to pull it out. I got to read it. I got to hear myself say it. Wouldn't it, does it make sense to you? Tell me if, if you know, I don't know. Maybe, but I'm going to tell you, doesn't it make sense that we live in the most anxiety-ridden society on the planet and at the same time we feel we're the most entitled with the least amount of gratitude. Do, do you think there's a correlation there? I do. 
I do. Shoot me down somewhere else. Twitter, don't, don't go to Twitter. Don't go to Facebook. But I think those things work together. So I pulled out my list. I did. And I just sat by myself, got space to talk. I said, God, my heart needs to be full of gratitude today. And my heart is full of gratitude. And I went down a list. You were on the list. I said, God, I'm so thankful for my church family, my community who, who I love, who I, I know they love us. Lord, I love, I just love being connected. I just love being in a place that I'm not flying out there by myself. You know how many, you know, you know it's crazy to fly out there by yourself today, you know, or anytime, but do you know that? Some people still think they can do it. That's what's wild to me. I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, I said, I'm so thankful. I went down my line. I'm so thankful for Annette. So thankful. One month from today, 39 years we've been married. 39. I mean, it's weird for me to say that out loud because my ears are hearing it. I'm not 39 years old, so how could I be married (laughs) for 39 years? That just seems to be impossible. But I'm so thankful for 39 years that we've done life together and can I tell you man I was a hack before I met her I'm just confessing right now I mean I was a hack at best in college I was like on top of the my I was a D plus student man I was knocking it out of the park that money was going to good use D plus you know barely passing I meet her and like my buddies are going what happened man you went from like a D plus to an A plus. Your GPA just shot out the roof. I said, you bet, baby. I know she doesn't want to hang out with no slouch. And I'm not going to be one of those slouches. So being with her has made me better. Thank God. Yeah, you wouldn't like me without her. So I'm just telling you right now. My kids go down the list. Man, I'm so thankful. I got good kids. I am so thankful for my kids. My son just texted me. I'm buried studying, and my son gives me a text right in the middle of this, and he says, hey, Dad, you want to go to lunch with me and the boys? And, you know, I was so blessed that they still want me to hang out with them. They want me to hang out with them. It's going to dawn on me. They probably want me to pay for it, too, but I don't know. (laughs) I'm okay with that. I'm all right with it. No, but they like it. They like it. I like hanging out with them. They like what well, genuinely have fun and a good relationship. I do with my kids, my grandkids. It's a blast. It's a blast to be with them. And then I think about my friends and many of you in this room that I'm just so thankful for friendship that God has given us. And here, here's another one. Give up old things for new things. Philippians chapter 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Probably one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in the New Testament, uh, rest in my mind, is right here in verse 7. And the peace of God. Paul's not only talking about the peace he has in God, he's talking about a relationship he has with the God of peace. Wow. And the way that he unfolds this, can I tell you the language that he uses here? This is a divine exchange. It happens right before your very eyes. We lose worry and we get peace. How many like that deal? I do. I like that swap right there. How many need that swap? I mean, you don't only like it, but right now you're going, man, I need that swap right now. I need to swap worry for peace. I need it. 
I need it. See, what here? He says that this is a peace that goes beyond your understanding and comprehension. Isn't that amazing? I know people like this. I want to be a person that whatever comes along in circumstances in life, they're not living in denial, but they're not rattled. They stand firm in Jesus Christ. There's a peace that no one can take from them, and it's unexplainable because everything going on around them is chaotic, but they have a peace, a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that's hot. You can't understand it unless you get down into Jesus Christ and know that he's the only one that can give it. That's the peace. And listen to what he does here. He, he does something amazing. Look at the word guard. Will guard your heart. Now imagine this with me just for a moment. The Apostle Paul, where is he when he writes this? He is chained to a guard. So he is right. This is where I'm thinking. This is the way my mind works. And he's writing this, and he says, In the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Man, I want to go further with this. I want to press this thought even more. What can I do? How can I make this known? How can these people understand what I'm saying if I write this? And he looks up, and there's a big old thug standing next to him. And he goes, That's it. He will guard, because the word guard here is a military term. He switches to a military metaphor. And it's so incredible that he uses a military metaphor to talk about peace. He wants your attention. He's saying you might think that the peace of God is something that just goes and comes and it's whimsical. It's there one day and not the next. He's saying absolutely not. It's fortified. That God is so jealous for your peace that he's aggressive by putting his guard around your heart and your mind. He stands watch over your peace so you can live through today. That is stout, robust stuff right there. Because some of us think it just goes. It just, where did it went? Somewhere. It's like fairy dust. Well, I need peace. He said, no, man. He stands guard over your peace. He's committed to your peace. God's peace fins off our anxiety. Your protection is his peace in Christ Jesus. And here it is, last one. Think about the right things. Do you see the progression here? Think about the right things. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, then think on these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the crescendo of this exhortation that he's giving us here. So Paul, listen, Paul connects. You have to make this connection because we compartmentalize. We're great at it. Paul connects right thoughts with right actions. Well, I'm thinking about it. Well, good intentions. That's good intentions. Good intentions never, never got anything done in the world, ever. Paul's saying thoughts always influence action. Do you see what he says there? He says when you think about this, now how do you practice it? Follow me. Follow my example. And he says it in about five different ways. He says this is how you follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Follow me. You've seen me do it. You can do it. You've got to think about right things. So here's what it is for me. I have to make it simple. (laughs) You need to think about what you think about. You know how many of us don't think about what we think about? Well, that day is gone. Wow. Glad that one's over. 
there's no respite. There's no Sabbath. There's no time to take a break and reflect about what you're thinking about. Because I'm going to tell you what, all your problems, your problems in life right now, have started right there in the noggin. Pooh. And if you don't stop and think about what you're thinking about, you're just going to keep, that's the definition of insanity, isn't it? Just keep trying to, well, it'll change, it'll change. It won't change. It's going to keep going the same way because you have to stop and think about what you're thinking about. I love what Warren Wearsby says. I think I've shared this with you before. Listen to what he says. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Belief and conduct go together. You can't separate. You've got to connect the dots. They're part of our life. What we think, what we believe is how we will act. And I don't know what it is you think or believe, but I can tell you this. It is dictating at this very moment how you act. I know that. Paul knows that. So what is he saying? Think about what you're thinking about. And if it needs to be changed, then think about these things. I love it. I love it. Would you bow your head with me? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward, and we're going to, we're going to do something. We've, while they're coming forward, we've flipped the service around, as you've already noticed. One of the reasons we're doing that this morning is because I just felt that this message um, really deserved time to think. Um, and so you've heard this, and now we're going to give you a few minutes in the context of an environment of worship to think. Think on these things. Take a moment. Stop. And I'm also going to ask that our prayer teams, our prayer teams, if you'd get up and make yourself available, they are going to be prayer teams, care teams around this building because one of the exhortations that we're given, by the way, it's not a suggestion. Uh, Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.